ears are burning. Scrape, slurp, clink, clink. The sounds are like an emery board filing at my brain. Squeeze my pillow and grip my teeth, mentally preparing for the world that my mind was forced to awaken to. Roll over and open my eyes. My wife Anne is next to me, eating a bowl of cereal. To my horror, I see that it's Fruity Pebbles, the loudest, most obnoxious of all the cereals. She sees me staring at her bowl. What? I'm sorry. I, I know you hate this. I have to scrape the pebbles down the bowl into the milk or they get dried to the sides. Once they dry to the sides, it's hell to wash off, she explains to me. My hand touches her shoulder and lightly trails down her arm. Yes, baby, but do you have to do it between every bite? I try to say it as gently as possible. It's no use, though. I've forgotten to unclench my teeth. Surprisingly, instead of giving me a little attitude, she smiles at me. Okay, grumpy thumpy. I was going to wait until tonight to give it to you, but I think you need it now. Happy birthday, Robert. She represents me with a small gift box. Perfect. Gold metallic swirled wrapping with an emerald green bow. I eye it curiously. I do my best to unwrap it carefully, trying to make as little noise as possible. After seeing me delicately unfold the flaps of the wrapping, her inner child gets the best of her. Here, she says, taking the box from my hands and ripping the paper open, then crinkling it into a ball under her hands. I tried to hide my cringe as I turned away to pretend to look at something in the other room. Open the box! Her eyes dance with excitement. Inside the box was two little green foam-like nubs. The paper inside said, Noise Softening Earplugs. Thank you, Anne. This was so thoughtful. I really hope they work. I don't understand what it is. Most background noises are fine, but there's something that just kills me. I'm sorry you have to go through this with me, but I'm glad you're here. I give her a tight smile. Do you promise not to think I'm rude when I put them in? I don't want you to think I'm trying to tune you out, I asked her. She shakes her head and gives me a hug. Maybe these can actually make a difference. I put them in at work. It's amazing. I'm able to focus so much more on the job. For once, I don't leave with distress sweats, flirting majorly with a panic attack. I can still hear, but so much of the people noises are severely muted. I'm able to hold a conversation with my coworker Jimmy, as he sips his morning coffee. At lunch, I don't have to go to the parking lot and eat in my car. People tell jokes and I laugh at them, a side of me showing that people rarely get to see. I receive birthday drink offers, politely decline them and then go on my way. But on my way home, my head suddenly starts to pound. It's a sharp pain that starts in my temples and then radiates to both my ears. It's starting to get so bad that I'm thinking about pulling over for a minute. I shake it off, rub up my ears, and endure the rest of the three-mile drive I have left before home. Anne booked us dinner at one of the nicest restaurants in town, Juvude. Truthfully, she has been more excited about it than I have been. I want her to have a good night, despite my now semi-blinding headache. The television needs to be turned off before we left. 
As I walk across my bedroom, I step on the box my gifted came in earlier. On the other side of the enclosed piece of paper inside, in the smallest of wording, there's a disclaimer. Not to be used for long periods or while sleeping. How did she order these from? It had to be from one of those international shopping apps. I take the earplugs out and place them in my underwear drawer, my head still being stabbed by invisible needles. The fact that my heart has now started pounding in my ears is not helping. With my best happy husband face on, I gather myself. I then leave to meet Anne for dinner. My headache was ever so slightly fading. I'm grateful for every notch moved down on the number pain scale. When you've been at nine for an hour, a seven feels almost heavenly, at least for a little while, until you yearn for the pain to fall to five. I'm so close to be relieved enough to enjoy my experience when I noticed that I'd reached the restaurant before Anne had. I was led to a beautiful table with a disassembled nesting doll of silverware surrounding both plates. My eyes met the elderly woman's in the booth in front of mine. I gave her a polite nod before I sat down. I order a glass of water to start and wait for my wife. Sniffle, sniffle, snort, slurp, sniff, huck, sniff. The woman who'd I'd nodded to shared a booth back with mine. She sounded like she had a cold. She's trying to breathe clearly but failing miserably. My eye twitches and my headache instantly shoots back to a nine again. <laughs> Excuse me, I can't seem to get rid of the stuff. She clears her throat before blowing her nose loudly into a napkin. The waiter brings over my water. Excuse me, sir, I whisper. I really hate to be a bother, but can you please put me somewhere else? I know you're very busy, I plead. He gives me a strange look, but ushers me to another booth across the restaurant. As I was settling into it, Anne walks up and greets me with a kiss. Where's my birthday, babe? Where are your earplugs? She looks concerned. I tell her that they work just fine, but I want to give her my full attention tonight. I don't know why I didn't just tell her the truth. I guess I just don't want to hurt her feelings. She's always complaining about how I've never liked or used the gifts she got me over the years. We hold hands across the table, chatting about the events of our days. She orders some wine, but instructs to have it not come out of the table until the food is brought out. She wants to make sure she doesn't drink it all beforehand in case of a long wait. I'm glad of her thoughtfulness. My head still feels like my temples are in a vice, and alcohol usually doesn't help. The food and wine comes out, and it all looks amazing. I get a few bites in before the anxiety starts to ascent into my breaking point. Anne, beautiful as she is, has to have been the worst person to fall in love with for someone with my sensitivities. Her voice is soft, but every action she does seems to be amplified. Her teeth clink her glass every time she took a sip. Her dainty mouth smacks with delight with every other chew. The scraping of her silverware against her plate makes me aware of the sound of everyone else's on theirs. Every single bite met with a small moan of satisfaction before clicking her fork against her teeth as it leaves her mouth. 
It almost feels like the earplugs had made my ears more sensitive to it all. In my head. Oh, dear God, in my head. Stuttering an apology and telling Anne I'm not feeling well, I stand up abruptly and stumble out of the restaurant. I knock into our waiter on my way out and spin him in a confused circle. The dishes make a terrible sound as they swirl from their place on the tray. Seething with rage, I know I have to get out of here now. My urge to punch something rising with the now shrill whistle of my head. I get into my car and turn my radio up as loud as it goes. The blaring jumble of its peace to my ears compared to the events of the past hour. I drive around like that for a long while, making sure to stay far from small, sleeping neighborhoods. The time has totally slipped for me. It felt good on my head to feel the blowing night air as I drove through it. I was emboldened by my temporary relief and my own version of noise therapy. Pulling into our yard, I was ready to apologize to my wife and try to save the night. There are fresh tire tracks in the mud that tell me that she was here recently, but then left again. I walk into the house. It feels different. There's just a vibe to it that I can't quite place. There's a pink post-it on our closed bedroom door. Robert, I'm going to stay with my sister for a little while. I love you, but you need help. This is all in your head. Normal people don't live this way. I've tried to support you the best I can, but I have to live, Robert. We can't even try to have children because you're scared of their sounds. People make noise. All living bodies make noise. I need you to put as much effort into this as I have. Until I see that I won't be coming home. I love you. Anne. I ran the paper underwater, crumpled it up soundlessly, and threw it away. My mind is too overwhelmed with the fact that I get to have a silent night to worry about everything that she said. I'm sure it'll hit me tomorrow. There's nothing any doctor can do for me. My parents had it checked out when I was a boy, and they couldn't find anything wrong. I'm just about to sleep when I hear the most disgusting sound ever. Our cat jumped on our bed and was cleaning herself thoroughly. In the quiet of our room, it sounds like a lion eating a freshly killed gazelle, every swipe of the tongue wearing away a layer of my sanity. I tried placing her off the bed several times to no avail, and when I put her out of the room and close the door, she scratches at it until I scream with madness and let her back in. I can't take this anymore, and I honestly am surprised I've made it this far through life. I have to try and stop this so Anne will be with me again, so she can come home. She deserves a full life. The ticking of her grandmother's clock grows louder with every minute. I run downstairs to the kitchen counter and open the junk drawer. There they are. A pile of assorted, multicolored pins. My bet comes out and heaves as I grab the pins and stare at them. I've thought about this a lot, but I've never had the alone time to go through with it. I start to giggle as the first pin goes in. I test the boundaries of my ear canal, trying not to get discouraged by the task ahead. I make two practice motions, and then on the third attempt, bite down hard on the towel. 
I rammed the pin in my ear as fast and as hard as it will go in one shot. The pain erupts through my head and I feel a slight warm trickle down the side of my face. While still caught up in the adrenaline, I plunge the other pin into the other ear. I shove until everything turns white. My vision fuzzes around the edges and I feel myself black out from pain. I wake up in unfamiliar surroundings. My head explodes with pain and my wrists are cuffed to the bed rails. I'm in a hospital, I know that. What I don't know is why I'm chained to this bed. Oh, Jesus Christ, my head. Maybe they can do something for the shattered glass that invades my brain. I look up and see a police officer standing there. Looks like he's trying to tell me something. I can't hear him even though he's standing five feet away. I shake my head, tell him I can't hear. A man in a long doctor's coat comes in with a clipboard as the officer starts to leave. I see them exchange words in the doorway but can't make out what they're saying. The officer hands him a file and shakes his head at me before leaving. Now I'm even more confused than before. They give me nothing for my headache and don't stop in much to check on me. Everyone whose eyes I meet seems to have a hateful look on their face. I bang on the near table to get the doctor's attention. I ask her as best I can what's going on. I'm relieved at my newfound auditory failure, but it's not against the law to deafen yourself, isn't it? The doctor runs out the room and drops the file accidentally, its papers scattering across the floor. I peek over my bed to see if any of the papers fell close enough for me to read. I saw my name, Robert Hallner, on what looked to be a police report. Some photos had fallen to where I couldn't see the front, only the back. There was another paper with my name written on it, and below it said the word, Misophonia. In the corner closet, closest to my bed, I could see one of the pictures was face up. I moved my whole body to try and scoop closer to see more clearly. I wish I hadn't. What I saw was a picture of my wife's pale, clouded eyes looking up from a mutilated face. Her tongue had been cut out. I didn't do this. I looked at my wrist restraints and can see the faintest trace of blood flaked onto the fabric and under my fingernails. Why can't I remember? I've been in this institution for about three months now, deemed too mentally unstable to be fit for prison. They say that when I awoke from after destroying my ears, Anne had come home to check on me. I'm assuming she was feeling badly for what she had wrote. There were a small grouping of flowers with a note that said, for better or for worse, written on a scrap of paper that was found bloodied on the floor by her ankles. Believe it or not, that's, that's not the worst part of this. The worst part is the ringing. The constant, haunting ringing that has taken place in my ears and throughout my skull. It's agonizing. My constant screams do nothing to drown it out. 
I managed to use the computer in the shithole they call a rec room to type my story. They won't let me have pens, you see. So that's my life now. Sitting in a room, staring at a wall, rocking back and forth, screaming, I can't hear you! I can't hear you! Hey everyone, really quick before we get into the next story, I want to ask real quick. Do any of you suffer from what the person in this story suffered from? This misphonia, I believe is how it's pronounced. It's like you're not not necessarily able to process certain noises, but certain noises feel grating to you. I think I have a tinge of it. I wouldn't say I would I wouldn't self-diagnose myself, but I definitely have certain sounds that give me a very angry visceral reaction. I also have a small bit of tinnitus or I think it's tinnitus. I get that ringing in my ear quite a bit, um, probably from when I was a teenager and listened to music. Just, just way too loud. <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm curious if any of you suffer from either of those things because I've heard that something like this can help people with that, especially when you're trying to go to sleep. You need noise like a fan or a television or something. So I'm just curious about that. Let me know down in the comment section below if you have it and what are some of your triggers for it. I'd be interested to know. Anyway, let's get on to the next story. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do I even say other than hey <sighs> well that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier starting the chat better and dating safer they've changed so you don't have to download the new Bumble now. From the Diary of Jake Sato, May 11th, 2019. I've always tried to rationally think through how we got here. What happened to lead us down this path? Why did life turn out like this? When I do... My mind always comes back to that summer's day in Scotland. Everything stems from that like a collapsed vein, a happier time cut off from us in the past, and nowhere else to go but this tainted present. Back in 1977, my wife Jenna and I saw something neither of us could comprehend. It changed us forever. We were staying in a small Scottish village called Aberfoyle for a week at the time. It was a quaint place, surrounded by pleasant rolling hills, woodland, and lochs. From our hotel, we could explore the lush Scottish scenery, something Jenna had wanted to do since she was a kid. 
Her mother was Scottish, and although she'd passed away when my wife was very young, Jenna always felt a deep connection to the country. It was a spiritual home of sorts. She was fascinated by it. The vast spaces of green and rock, clear blue waters, snow, rain, wind, sun piercing through it if you were lucky. It was the natural world in its element. Most of all, Jenna cherished the few memories she had of her mother telling stories about Scotland. It was a mystical place for her and her family, and that pull to see it firsthand only grew over the years. I'd spent my childhood in a small town in the Midwest. I'd had my fill of nature and preferred the streets of Boston as an adult, but when my wife turned 30, I knew that a trip across the Atlantic would make the perfect present. When I told her we were going, she was so happy. Haverfall Village was barely more than the main street at the time with our hotel. I say hotel, but it was more of a bed and breakfast, sitting on one of the rare, empty back streets. At night, the place shut down except for a solitary pub, leaving us to breathe in the relative silence and darkness of the surrounding hills and forests. The first night there, we had a dinner at a small restaurant. That night brought more than its fair share of surprises. The first was when I surprised Jenna with a silver bracelet engraved with a suitably soppy message on the underside. But that wasn't where the unexpected ceased. Jenna then dropped the biggest surprise of all. She was pregnant with our first child. We had been trying for over a year, and we were beginning to worry that something was wrong, and... So to hear that, it was overwhelming. We celebrated. Jenna on the orange juice, me on the scotch. The next day, my head was pounding, and I asked that we stay closer to the hotel rather than have our planned trip into Glasgow City. Jenna was a little put out, but by lunchtime, my headache had lifted a little, and I suggested a walk through the countryside as a compromise. The night before, one of the locals had told me about a scenic walk through Queen Elizabeth Forest. It sounded perfect, and was just a short drive away. If I had to hurl, at least I wouldn't be doing it in front of other people. Jenna was excited to get out and about, and so we drove for about 20 minutes from Aberfoyle and parked in a small makeshift parking lot inside the forest. This was the place the trails started, and they could only be explored on foot. When we got out, the scent of pines was sweet in the air, and the fresh smell made me feel much better. Although I've been told the location is now more popular on the day that we saw no other cars on the road in the forest, and the parking lot itself was empty. The sun was high in the sky as we headed on foot toward what was supposed to be a relaxing forest walk. I remember smiling at Jenna. She was so beautiful. A wooden information board showed us the route we were to take. Given her condition, I didn't want Jenna to overexert herself, so we took the path marked in green, which meant it should have been the easiest trail. And it was, for a while. The path moved through pockets of pine trees and had clearly been used many times before. It was picturesque, and with each step, I started to understand why Jenna had been so happy to visit the place. There's... Undoubtedly, something necessary about getting away from the world to lose yourself in nature. 
It's like we still have an ancient part of ourselves that gets nourished by the deep greenery. As we strode along the dirt path, we started talking about what we could call the baby if it were a boy or a girl. It was then that we realized we were not alone. In front of us in the distance, a young boy walked out from the tree line and stood on the path ahead about 50 yards away, just staring at us. He looked to be about eight or nine years old. Being in an isolated area would have been unnerving to begin with, but what immediately filled me with disbelief was the fact that the boy was clearly naked. The sun reflected off his skin and his pale color was stark against the green of the forest. What do you do in a situation like that? This was in the 1970s, and although there were always whispers of terrible things happening behind closed doors, it was long before the public truly accepted that many children were being abused or mistreated. Still, the unsettling sight was soon replaced with concern for the child. Jenna picked up the pace and shouted, Hello? But something immediately made me grab her hand to stop her from running up to the boy. I asked Jenna to stay put, not just for herself, but for our unborn child's sake. The last thing I wanted was for a stressful situation to affect the pregnancy. Reluctantly, she stayed where she was, and I stepped forward toward the boy. As I drew closer, I realized just how pale and emaciated he was, as though he'd been kept somewhere, malnourished and away from sunlight for some time. Are you okay? I asked. Where are your parents? He just looked at me, the skin beneath his eyes darker than the surrounding skin. Cautiously, I moved closer with my arms open so as not to scare him. Let us help you. Maybe we could take you to the police or help you find your parents? The closer I got, the more I felt the uncertainty of the situation. There was something very wrong with the boy. I expected him to move back or show some sort of fear, but he didn't. In fact, I was sure that a subtle grin momentarily flickered across his face before returning to the same somber expression as before. By this time, I was standing straight in front of him. I asked... What's your name? Again, he said nothing, but now he was looking intently into my eyes. And that gaze carried with it nothing but menace. The boy then reached out his right hand and touched the center of my chest. The touch of his fingers left me unsure of myself. I turned to look back at Jenna down the path to ask her what I should do. As I turned, I heard a rustling sound, and when I looked back toward the boy, he was no longer there. I followed the rustling to the side of the path. The ground dipped down into a slight incline. There, the trees and bushes created thick clumps of leaves and branches. It looked difficult to traverse, and I thought that the boy's naked skin must have been scraped and cut to pieces running out in there. It was so dim between the trees, the tangled green mess. Waiting for a moment, I listened. And there was nothing but the occasional 
creak of a branch swaying in the gentle breeze. Above, the sun shone directly onto the path, but just a few steps forward and I would have been engulfed by the dark of the forest. The difference in light was stark in my mind, and although I wanted to help the kid, everything about the situation left me in a wary state of mind. Seeing no sign of the boy, I walked back to Jenna. She asked where he was. I said I didn't know, and told her that he'd disappeared into the forest when my back was turned. Jenna looked pale, and she gave me a look I knew only too well. I'd seen it a few times over the previous few years. Something was on her mind, and she just had to get it out. Jenna looked me straight in the eyes and said, I never saw the boy leave the path. She insisted that it was as if he had just vanished. One moment he was there, the next he was gone. I was caught in a difficult situation. This was long before the common cell phone. One of us needed to alert the authorities that there was a young boy stranded in the woods running around as naked as the day he was born. Considering how deep and thick the section of forest around us was, he could have easily fallen and hit his head on a rock or later died of hypothermia when the night came. There was only one thing we could do. One of us would have to stay put in case the kid needed help, while the other would walk back to the car, drive into town, and raise the alarm. There was no question that I would stay in the forest, but I didn't feel right about letting Jenna go back to the car by herself. Even if she hadn't been pregnant, I wouldn't have liked that. But Jenna was always stronger-willed than me, and although I would try to pull the usual strong husband routine common at the time, she was nearly always immune to it. Jenna insisted she would head back down the path and that I should try and find the kid, but not to stray too far. She would be back as soon as possible with help. I told her to honk the horn when she was leaving the parking lot. That way I'd know she'd got back to the car, okay? I got a smile and roll of the eyes in return, but she promised to do it if it made me feel better. She gave me a kiss on the cheek and walked back the way we'd come. I watched her until she disappeared from view. Although I'd spent the last ten years living in Boston, I grew up in the Midwest, and so hikes through the woods were not alien to me. But this... This was different. There was something off about that long stretch of path. It was flanked by pine trees so close together that the forest was as dark as twilight once you stepped off the path and into it. And that was something I had no intention of doing. The tree line was like an impenetrable wall to me. Nonetheless, I stared at it in search of the smallest sign of life. I was sure that since I hadn't heard anyone moving around in there, the boy must have been near. He would have made too much noise moving through the uneven and cluttered terrain. There was a sense of loneliness about that place. No, not loneliness, but... Isolation. 
like it was an arm cut off from the body of the world. Such environments infect the mind with paranoia, and as I was entertaining the stark atmosphere of the place, I kept my eyes on the side of the path from where the boy had first appeared. My imagination took over. I began to think about the kid lost in the woods. I thought about how he'd gotten into such a situation, and those thoughts were too dark to dwell on. I turned my mind to a lighter explanation. Maybe there was a lock nearby, and he was swimming there with his friends, I thought. They took his clothes as a prank, and then he'd followed the path trying to get back to town. Yeah, that made sense. Must have been something like that. But why didn't he speak to me? And what of his skin? It was unusually pale, and that flicker of a smile on his face... It caused me doubt just to think about it. Continuing my vigil, I wondered why Jenna hadn't honked the car horn yet as she left the parking lot. I was sure she would have made it back there by then. That's when I thought I saw movement. I didn't know if it was a deer or the missing boy himself. Slowly, I stepped forward to the edge of the path and peered in. The quiet of the place took over and I stared steadily for any hint of movement. I was so focused that I had no time to react to the real danger. Something walked out of the woods from behind me at speed. I barely had a moment to turn, and when I did, something large and white put its hands on me. It knocked me from the path, and as I fell down the incline under the trees and bushes in front, a searing pain cut across my vision. A branch of pine needles scratched across my left eyeball, leaving me unable to see out of it. Instinct kicked in, and I fled deeper between the trees, the branches cracking and prodding around me as I did so. Blood and tears oozed from my injured left eye, and as I looked back momentarily with my right, I saw, standing on the sunlit path, two people. A man and a woman. Both were naked, and their skin was as white as the boys I'd seen, gleaming in the summer sun. Both figures stepped forward, toward where I was, and I quickly attempted to hide within the cutting embrace of a large pine tree, but it was clear that they could see me somehow. A sense of relief cut through my adrenaline. I could at least be happy that Jenna had made it back to the car without incident, hopefully out of the forest and away from my attackers. The man and the woman stared at me through the trees, their gaze dark and malevolent, angry even. When he and the woman moved toward where I stood, I panicked and picked up a moss-covered rock on the ground at my feet. It was the only way to protect myself. I watched, anticipating their movements, waiting for them to attack. The woman spoke to the man, and her words were unlike any I'd heard before. It wasn't just the language that confused me, but I'm uncertain how any human could make such a sound. Beneath the words, there was an unusual noise. Each word lay on top of a breath, like a storm swelling and pushing through a constricted space. The man answered with a lower yet equally airy voice. There we were, waiting. I might not have understood the language, but I knew that they meant to harm me, and for the first time, the thought that I might never leave that forest alive rose up in my mind. 
Just as the man finally lurched toward where I was, my heart began to race. If the sound of Jenna striking our car horn had made me feel more at ease, the second time it sounded put me on edge. When the horn sounded for a third, and then a final fourth time, I knew something terrible had happened. Jenna needed help. There was no time for dialogue. These people, whoever they were, had undoubtedly hurt that boy we had encountered, and now they were hell-bent on hurting me and my wife. Who knew how many of them there were? I had to get back to Jenna and to make sure she was okay. The man continued moving forward, the pine branches breaking against his skin, and when he reached me, I leapt forward and swung the rock in my hand with all my might. When it contacted with his head, I was certain I had killed him. Something cracked inside of his skull. I felt it. Blood sprayed across me as he staggered back onto the trail. I'll never forget the piercing, inhuman scream the woman let out when she leaned over to help her bloodied companion. The man's pale white face had come apart from the attack, his features now a flap of skin hanging from the side of his head. The woman stood up to come at me and shocked at what I had done, I ran back down the path. Looking back with my one good eye, I could see that she was still with the man's crumpled body, and so I focused purely on reaching Jenna. When I got to the parking lot, I wasn't sure what I saw at first. The car door was open and Jenna was lying in the driver's seat. A small, pale, white figure was hunched over her, doing something. As I ran to the car, the figure who I could now see was the boy we'd first encountered let out a screech and held a bloody mess in his hands. It was too late. The boy scampered off toward the surrounding forest, but as he reached the tall grass just before the tree line, he stopped. Crouching down, he turned and stared at me, his white skin bleached red with my wife's blood. I didn't care if I was going to die. I took a deep breath and turned to look at what he had done to my wife. She was sitting in the driver's seat, her eyes glazed, but I didn't understand. She was looking at me in a daze, smiling. There was no blood. No visible wound that I could see. I dreamt about our child, she said. She lost consciousness. I pulled her still-breathing body out of the driver's seat and laid her gently in the back. She was talking to herself, mumbling something as though she were in a deep, confusing dream. My only thought was to get her to a hospital. Climbing into the car, I slammed the door shut. All the while, the boy covered in blood nestled something in his hands, stared at me from the tall grass. But he was no longer alone. The man and woman I'd encountered on the path were with him, and the man, though he bore a scar down the side of his cheek, looked as though his entire face had been sewn back on. They watched silently as I drove out of the parking lot, and I was left with the uneasy feeling that they allowed me to leave. Jenna recovered in a local hospital, and to my complete surprise and joy, our baby was still alive and healthy inside of its mother. 
We spoke with the local police. Of course, no one believed us. Why would they? There wasn't a scratch on Jenna, and bizarrely, even the blood which had sprayed across me during my fight on the forest path had vanished like disappearing ink. When I asked Jenna about what had happened in the parking lot, she said all she remembered was a flash of white on the windscreen as if something had jumped up on the hood of the car, and then nothing. But she did say she dreamed about a crying baby. Months later, we were back in Boston. Jenna gave birth to our son. He was beautiful. And we were happy. For a few days. But to our horror, just a short while after getting him home, his skin began to change color like food going bad because of the air. His skin darkened as he cried for his life. I called 911, but it was too late. He stopped breathing in Jenna's arms. We were overcome with grief I can't describe. Looking down at our beautiful boy, his skin now the color of mold, his eyes frozen open looking at us. We heard the paramedics come into our home downstairs, but before they reached us, the miraculous happened. Suddenly, our son began breathing again. His eyes rolled around and then his skin began to change color back to its original healthy tone. But the change did not stop. They grew paler and paler until there was no doubt that we were staring at one of the children of the forest. Before our very eyes, and I will swear this until my dying breath, our son then began to fade away just as the blood had evaporated on my clothes. As the last outline of him vanished, he let out the laugh of a child far older than his few days. The laugh moved off into the air and cut through the nearest window, fading to nothing. If it wasn't for the paramedics who saw the last moment themselves, the police would have thought we disposed of our own child. We didn't. He was never our child to begin with. He was of the forest, and I'm certain that's where he lives now, lost in a sea of green. And what of our own unborn child? What's he taken from Jenna's body at the forest? Is it possible he lives there too? The possibility still haunts me. As to these memories I've finally put into words. Jenna and I remain married, though we swore after that day never to have another child. Perhaps the effects of what we encountered in that forest still linger in her body. Who knows what we would have brought into this world.